0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: The first reading this morning is taken from Daniel chapter 7, which you can find on page 893 in the church Bibles, and we're reading verses 13 and 14. That's Daniel 7 on page 893. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The second reading is uh, from Luke's Gospel, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. And that's on page 1039 in the Church Bibles. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone and he said the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Graham. Good morning, everyone, on this uh, lovely early spring morning. What a joy to to gather here this morning. Uh, What a joy to have uh, God's Word in front of us as we gather. If you just close your Bibles, we're looking particularly at Luke chapter 9. It's on page 1039 in these church Bibles. When Ernest Shackleton was preparing to lead an expedition to the South Pole at the start of the 20th century. The story goes that he posted an ad in a London paper, and it said this, "'Men wanted for hazardous journey. "'Small wages, bitter cold, "'long months of complete darkness, "'constant danger, safe return doubtful, Honour and recognition in case of success.'" Story goes that uh, some five thousand men did respond to the ad. Uh, there's a kind of a, a certain kind of appeal for those people who like danger and risk. But for the rest of us, when the snow comes, I struggle to walk to the co-op, let alone the South Pole. And so, what do we make of this reading from Luke nine? It's a call to sign up to follow Jesus. And if anything, it's a far more daunting call than anything Shackleton could come up with. Verse 23, it's a call to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses. A cross was one of the most horrific means of execution ever devised by the human mind. Verse 24, it's a call to lose our lives. And there might be some here this morning who hear these words and we say, bring it on. But my guess is that for most of us, they leave us feeling overwhelmed. Maybe we're new to Christian things and we think if this is the cost of following Jesus, who would sign up? Many of us are here, uh, many of us are Christians here this morning and maybe we hear these words with a kind of joyless resignation. We know it must be this way, and so we trudge on in the Christian life. Or, or, or perhaps we hope that we can be the exception, that we can somehow get Jesus without the cost. Or perhaps we just want to pull the duvet over our heads and hide by all accounts, Shackleton was a great leader of men. People followed him anywhere. But this morning, we're going to see that Jesus is a far better leader, and by far. You see, before Luke shows us what it means to follow Jesus, he wants to show us Jesus. Jesus. And it's as we see the glory and majesty of Jesus, so we'll see that it's worth the cost of following him. So two points this morning. The first is this. Don't miss the glory of Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? Jesus has been involved now in in public ministry for some time, and so this is a crucial moment. What do people make of him? Verse 19. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago have, have come back to life. These are all very complimentary responses. And today, even though many people use the name of Jesus as a swear word, if you push them a bit further, many people still have a high view of Jesus. Many would say, well, he was a prophet with a a good message to bring to the world. But the thing about a prophet is, you can ignore him if you want to. Just one of the many voices around. And so Jesus continues, verse 20, but what about you? He asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. A few years ago, Lorna and I were coming back from Northern Ireland on the ferry, and as we boarded the ferry, we became aware of a kind of buzz of excitement over to one side, a little group of people was gathering around someone in the center and as we walked by I glanced over and I saw a man in the middle of the little buzz. I didn't recognize him so I just I just passed on and uh, we, we found our seats we sat down and Lorna leaned over to me and said did you see the guy there? I went yes and apparently he's some famous celebrity on Northern Irish TV unbeknownst to me. Now in that moment I felt slightly left out, that I wasn't part of the buzz, I I didn't recognize this great Northern Irish celebrity, but I have to say, in the years after that moment, I've coped okay. (laughs) My life has gone on, I haven't been too impacted by my lack of understanding of who this person is, no offense to him, I won't, won't mention who he is, but the stakes are much higher with Jesus. In the days of Jesus, the people of God were longing for a Messiah to come and rescue them. And oh, how they needed it. In Jesus' day, God's people were languishing under Roman occupation with high taxes and no freedom and an uncertain future. The Old Testament had promises of a great king who would come and defeat all of God's enemies and bring peace and deliverance to his people. And here in verse 20, Peter is seeing what the crowds and indeed Herod from last week, verse 9, what they could not see, that Jesus is the longed-for Messiah. Don't miss the glory of Jesus. Of course, Peter didn't get there straight away. We've been looking at Luke's gospel for a few weeks now. And if you've been with us over the series, you'll remember that back in chapter 8, Jesus performed a mighty miracle, calming the raging storm with just words. And at the end of the miracle, the disciples says, Who is this man? And then after that miracle, they saw Jesus cast out evil spirits, heal the sick, raise the dead even. And it seems that the final piece in the jigsaw puzzle for Peter was what happened in our reading from last week when Jesus fed many people in a remote place with bread, a miraculous provision. And after seeing all these things, the answer comes to Peter Who is this? He is the Messiah. You see, Peter would have grown up with stories from the Old Testament of how God had rescued his people with mighty acts from slavery in Egypt and how he brought them through the wilderness to the promised land, a land of of peace and prosperity. And he would have heard how when God brought his people out of slavery to Egypt, God performed a mighty act in in crossing the Red Sea. He, He drove the waves back. And he would have heard how in the desert, God provided manna from heaven to sustain his people in the wilderness. And it seems that as Peter sees Jesus calming the wind in waves and feeding the people with bread in the wilderness, he's realizing that this carpenter from Nazareth, Joseph's boy, Jesus, is doing miracles that the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Lord, only he could do. And if God did those miracles to perform a mighty rescue from slavery in Egypt into the peace of the promised land, maybe, just maybe, this Jesus, who is the Messiah, can free God's people once again with a mighty act of deliverance. Now, I want to pause there because uh, Peter has much more to learn about the glory of Jesus. We'll get there in just a moment. But Peter is right. Jesus is the Messiah, our Messiah, God's Messiah. And this morning, I wonder, do we really believe this? That this carpenter from Nazareth who walked around the Galilean countryside 2,000 years ago is God himself on earth come to rescue us with divine power? Because in practice, don't we often look elsewhere for deliverance? Perhaps looking to ourselves. When life is hectic and scary and chaotic, so often our response, my response is to double down and work harder and work smarter to kind of find a way through the challenges, through our efforts For many people in this world, it's money. Money can be a great rescuer. It can buy us better health care. It can buy us better access to resources and help. It can make us more independent. It can buy us things like houses and cars. It can buy us pleasures and experiences that help to make us feel alive and to numb the pain of a boring life. Maybe it's other people around us. We look to them for our ultimate confidence to give us hope, to get us through. And it's easy to miss the glory of Jesus, the Messiah. And if we have a a mini Messiah view of Jesus... Then the call he makes on us to follow him in a costly way, it'll just sound like foolishness. Why give up everything to follow a mini Messiah? He doesn't really rescue us, he cannot really help us. It's only when we have a big view of Jesus and to see the glory of the rescue he has come to bring, only then does it make sense. Don't miss the glory of Jesus. But let's get back to Peter. So far, he's scoring top marks in the discipleship exam. So far. But look at what Jesus says to him next. Verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Now, this makes no sense. We've just seen how the crowds, Herod, they've they've got it wrong about Jesus. They don't see who he is. So surely... Jesus would be sending his disciples out to spread the good news that the Messiah has come. But Jesus says, no, don't tell anyone. Why is that? Well, it's because Peter and his fellow disciples have the wrong view of the kind of Messiah Jesus is. Verse 22. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. Jesus hasn't come to wield a sword. He's come to suffer on a cross. That's how he's going to save. That's the kind of Messiah he is. During the course of human history, there have been many powerful leaders. The pharaohs of Egypt, the great kings of Assyria and Babylon and Persia, Alexander the Great, the Caesars of Rome, the list goes on, but none of them, come even close to the character Jesus mentions here in verse 22. The Son of Man. It's an Old Testament title. We had it introduced to us in that first reading from Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, we find the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. That is God the Father. And when he comes to God the Father, he is given ultimate power and authority over everyone, everywhere, forevermore. That's Daniel 7. And here in Luke 9, many years later, Jesus is saying, I am that son of man. That's me. Coming to die. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the son of man towers over everyone and everything. And yet here in Luke 9, Jesus is showing us that he, the son of man, is going to use his power an ultimate sovereign rule to humble himself to die on the cross to rescue us because that's our greatest need, to have our sins dealt with on the cross. Think of our leaders today. Just spend a moment calling to mind our political leaders in this country but also in the world around us today. Uh, leaders who have worked hard to climb the rungs of power to get to where they are today, can we imagine any of those leaders laying aside their status and power to die like Jesus is going to do for us? Don't miss the glory of Jesus. He is the king over everyone, everywhere, forevermore, laying down his cross, laying down his life on the cross to take away God's anger from us. He's not come to be a political leader, but a spiritual leader. A kingdom built not by swords, but by suffering. And so I wonder, what is it for us this morning where are we most in danger of missing the glory of Jesus? Uh, We've seen how he is the Messiah. Maybe we doubt that. Or maybe for us this morning, it's that we doubt his heart for us. That we don't feel safe around him. That we're not sure if we can trust him. And in hard times... When our world is falling apart and we look to Jesus to sort things out and he doesn't, that's when we can most wonder if he's for us. Jesus is warning us that discipleship will be hard, and yet he's showing us his heart for us, willing to die on the cross in our place. Don't miss the glory of Jesus. But second, Don't miss the life he brings. Our culture today has a very clear idea of how to live life to the full. We're told again and again that it's all about being true to yourself, following your feelings, doing what's right for you. And one of the great sins of our culture today is to infringe on someone else's freedom to challenge their self-determination. And so the words of Jesus this morning are both deeply affirming and yet also utterly condemning of our culture. You see, Jesus is showing us that to seek life is a good thing. Jesus wants us to live. He wants us to be fully alive, in fact, have eternal life. He's for life. But this life is not found in living for ourselves. Verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. When we're on a diet, we might deny ourselves a little piece of cake or or a biscuit Perhaps as the spring weather arrives and the flowers come into bloom, our hay fever resurfaces. And so we say, well, we all have a little cross to bear. But this kind of denial, this kind of cross bearing, it just misses the sheer gravity of what Jesus is talking about. To deny ourselves is to stop sitting on the throne of our lives to vacate it and to put Jesus where he deserves as our king on the throne. To take up our cross daily is to be willing to die to ourselves and to suffer for Jesus, for his name and for his cause. Or verse 24, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. To save it now means living for, for, for self now. To lose life now means handing over the reins to Jesus. And verse 25 makes the same point with a, with a question. What good is it to gain everything now only to lose it all when he returns? Many in our culture today would hear these words and would push back strongly against Jesus. How dare he tell me to live my life this way? It feels like a coercive power play, doesn't it, to our culture to say these kind of things to people? And if I said it, or if you said it, if any human lips said it, then there would be something dangerous about that kind of move. But these are the words of the Christ, the Son of Man, God himself, who has every right to tell us how to live our lives and how we will lose them as well. And verse 26 reminds us that he will come back to judge the world. And each human will have to give an account to him for how we've responded to him. He's not out to ruin our lives. We've already seen his deep love for us, willing to die for us. He wants to save our lives, to give us life. Forever. And so just thinking about our, our own lives today, I think many of us uh, have a, a view of our lives a bit like a, a pie chart. Forgive me, I'm an ex-engineer, so if it doesn't work for you, then bear with me. But you can imagine a, a kind of pie chart of our lives. And um, if we're a student, then one wedge of the pie chart will be will be our studies. Um, for others of us here, a big wedge will be our, our careers, our, our work time. Another pie slice will be our our family or our friends. There might be a a hobbies, downtime, fun slice. There might be a, a life admin slice. You get the idea, don't you? And when we become Christians, it's easy to have a view of Jesus where we just create a new wedge in the pie chart called Jesus, and we slot him into our lives. And the other Bits of the wet pie has to kind of shrink a bit to fit him in. And there's a bit of a readjustment. But he's there as one of the wedges. And so we go through our week. We, we study. Uh, we work. We see our family. We have time with our friends. We have our hobbies, our downtime, our life admin. And we have our Jesus bit. We come to church on a Sunday. But can we see that? pie chart view of our lives just does not fit with the words of Jesus. Because he is asking us to live for him in every area of our lives. To deny ourselves to put him on the throne over everything. So he's king of our studies which will change our goals and desires when it comes to our education. It'll change why we work to study hard. It'll change what we hope to achieve with our studies or how we feel if we don't get the grades we want to get. He's king over our careers, which will change why we work and how we work. It'll mean that If we speak up for Jesus in the workplace and we lose face with our colleagues, with the bosses, and perhaps we we miss the next promotion, we can know our life is safe in his hands, that we don't need the extra money for our security. I can go through all the different wedges of the pie chart, but Jesus is king over all of them. Not just one of the wedges. And I think one of the areas where our culture is most clearly pushing against the lordship of Jesus, and there are many, including materialism and and wealth and money, that is a big area of pushback. But another area is around sex and relationships. We've seen our culture change hugely in recent years in this area. Jesus only ever described marriage as being between one man and one woman for life. And it's clear that any activity outside of marriage, any sexual activity outside of that pattern is sin. And yet in our culture today, our culture has been that pattern. It's said you can have sex in any context with anyone, anywhere, as long as no one is hurt. And so for all of us, as we think about having Christ as our king, It'll mean being radically different from our culture. And each of us will have to think through what it looks like in our own lives and our own sexual experience. It was great having Ed Shaw here with us a few weeks ago, one Friday evening. Uh, Ed is a Christian who is also same-sex attracted. And he is convinced that Jesus calls him to a celibate life. He was honest about how hard that is. It can be incredibly difficult and yet he's also convinced of the glorious future he has to look forward to. It's all worth it following Jesus in this life now. But even as Ed talked to us about the the cost for him of following Jesus, he put the question to all of us, and he said this to us, how costly is your discipleship? It might be particularly costly for us in the area of sex and relationships, But we're all called in every section of our pie chart of our lives to be living an equally, radically costly life as we follow Jesus. And I'm afraid the church in this country is in danger of real hypocrisy. I I feel the danger myself of saying to to those who are same-sex attracted that they need to live a costly life of abstinence while we ourselves in other areas are not willing to live an equally radical and costly discipleship. And if we have a cost-free view of discipleship, it's no wonder that the Church of England wrestles with its view of marriage. And so much of the argument that we're hearing for moving away from orthodox historical positions is not based on Scripture on the words of Jesus, but rather on human experience, of a longing to live life now, a longing for fulfillment now, a longing to be in step with our culture now. If that is our view of discipleship in general, then when it comes to thinking through how we live in the sexual area, of course that's what we'll think. But the words of Jesus in Luke 9 are so clear The pattern of true discipleship for all Christians in every area of life, day by day, is self-denial now. It's suffering now, knowing that life is to come. And so it is a hard call. The cost is high. Jesus is clear with us about that. And it will only make sense to live this way if we have a bigger view of Jesus. If we see his glory, God's Messiah who rescues, the son of man who dies. If we see the life that he brings us, which is an eternal life, only then will it make sense. And when it is hard to keep going, looking forward to the future, when this present feels much more real than the future to come, verse 27 is such a help as we finish Jesus says truly I tell you some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God in the first instance I think he's talking about his transfiguration come back next week to see what happens there but I think in a bigger sense he's talking about what happens on the third day when he's raised having died on the cross His resurrection is the moment when his victory is displayed for the world to see, where his kingship is understood in all its grandeur. And some of his disciples will see his resurrection. Which means that Jesus is not like Ernest Shackleton, who could give no reassurance to his followers that if they were to follow him, the outcome would be a good one. Because we stand this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we can look back and see that every promise he made about his own experience has come to pass. Which means that when he makes promises to us about our experience, about life beyond the grave, we've got every reason to trust him as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we're sorry when we have a small view of his glory. When the cost of following him feels too much or unreasonable. Father, please keep opening our eyes afresh to him. That we might wonder at his rescue. Rejoice in his love that he would die for us. And be confident that when he returns, there will be a wonderful moment of welcome and of eternal life. And Father, I pray for each one of us as we consider in our own lives, our own situation, what discipleship looks like for us. Would you help us to see the areas where we are clinging on to the power and not letting go? Father, please help us to take that step, even if it's scary, to put Christ at the center and to live for him. And I pray that as a church, you'd help us to be profoundly countercultural in our following of Jesus, clearly showing the world that he is worth it. And in his name we pray. Amen.